Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. We're going to dive deep into a lot of NBA stuff that happened over the weekend. We're going to start with 76ers and Nuggets, what I think was one of the most interesting games of the entire NBA season to this point and well worth breaking down on its own. Then we're going to go to that weirdo Celtics-Lakers finish and game, one that apparently is going to cause the official NBA refs account many sleepless nights, according to them. Uh, then we're going to move to the Miles Turner extension, which is a really, really interesting thing that happened over the weekend. The Pacers have finally committed at least somewhat long-term. We'll talk about that to Miles Turner. Then we're going to jump to some playoff teams that have young players in the rotation that have to make some decisions here at the upcoming deadline about whether or not they trust those young players or they don't trust them and what they do from there. Finally, we're going to talk about one of the most fun breakouts in the NBA right now, the Jeremy Sohan breakout. Uh, it happened midway through his rookie season. Some of it is contextual. Some of it is just him being really, really interesting as a prospect. We'll talk about all of that, but spins what's going on, buddy. Hey, Sam, really good to see you. Uh, excited for this episode. Fun to be jumping around the NBA in the league. I think we're probably going to yep. hit on almost half of the league based on how we talk about teams in different contexts, based on games from yesterday or you know NBA playoff decisions that are upcoming that relate to that and the trade deadline. So super, super fun to be able to dive into all of this. And uh, you know, watching playoff football right now, I keep being reminded of the differences between kind of regular season and postseason play. And as we have an eye to the trade deadline, as well as to the playoffs for several teams that are in that race, I think trying to contextualize the conversation about gearing up for the postseason is really important this time of year. Most importantly, though, I got to go to my first Big Bash League cricket final game last night to go see the Melbourne Renegades. Let's go. We got the hoodie on today. We're rocking Renegades gear. Go Gades. We love it. But let's talk about the 76ers and the Denver Nuggets. Again, just a fascinating game for a number of reasons. The Nuggets dropped like 73 points in the first half of this game. It looked like they were completely unstoppable offensively. And then the 76ers made a really, really intelligent move, switching P.J. Tucker onto Nikola Jokic. And I don't think I've seen anybody this season who has been able to speed up Nikola Jokic in the way that P.J. Tucker did. We often talk about on this podcast how Nikola Jokic is like this algorithm of basketball, and there's almost nothing you can do to speed that up. He's just going to operate at his own pace. He's going to operate at his own tempo and completely dominate the game with his decision-making and uh, passing and processing ability. He's going to score. He's going to make high-level reads to his teammates. 
And from the moment that PJ Tucker just started to like get into his lower half and crawl into him in transition from 75 feet away from the basket into the mid post, anywhere on the court in these short roll settings, it was so interesting to see that algorithm like just 10% malfunction and the effect it had on Denver's offense. I think PJ Tucker, look, obviously Joel Embiid was the most important player on the ga- in the game. James Harden was the second most important player. PJ Tucker was unequivocally the Sixers third most important player in that game. He was awesome. Awesome. Awesome against Nikola Jokic. And and that's where I wanted to talk about this looking forward to the playoffs, because I think what the Sixers were able to show, at least in a way that Denver has to now be conscious of, is maybe a little bit of a blueprint for how to interrupt that Nuggets offense in a certain way, where if you have a physical four man who can really slide his feet, move around and still be able to play a rim protector next to him to clean up some of the backdoor cuts, the other moves in a way that Embiid was really impactful in doing in that second half. Now you might have a way to cause some turnovers against Denver. And I think that that's the biggest thing is Jokic. I think he finished with seven turnovers. Philly was able to get a couple easy ones as a result of some of that. Like those possessions add up at the end of a game. But speeding up Jokic was definitely the story of the second half. Yeah, the idea of being able to put a physical four on him and then having that rim protection to guard against Aaron Gordon particularly because Aaron Gordon is constantly cutting baseline. He's constantly trying to finish at the rim. He's been an incredible partner for Nikola Jokic this season. I think he's probably been the second best nugget this season. And on top of it, like I thought he was really good yesterday. Shot eight of 10 from the field. I think he had like 19 points, 16 points, something like that. He was super, super impactful. And yet, having Joel Embiid just be able to sit at the rim and be available and just let Aaron Gordon shoot. Like if Aaron Gordon wants to shoot, by all means, go for it. That's going to be a strategy that opposing teams implement throughout the playoffs. No doubt. And I think that Denver needs to find an answer for that. As good as Aaron Gordon's been, maybe it's Aaron Gordon just like trusting himself and upping the three-point volume. He shot 39% from three this year. He's just only taking two and a half of them per game, right? Uh, You know, in this game, he only took one of them uh, and missed it. So maybe it comes down to Aaron Gordon trusting himself a little bit more. Maybe it comes down to, you know, them just having a different, you know, club in the toolbox, right? Or club in the bag in order to bust out in moments like this to give defenses a bit of a different look. And again, like, I I don't want to put this down to Aaron Gordon. I think he's been fantastic this season. I think he played his role really, really well. It's just that when teams can do this, it's interesting in a way to potentially slow down Denver's offense. You saw a lot of those like high-low lob plays, for instance, that Nikola Jokic loves to run. Those just completely evaporated uh, with Denver with Joel Embiid being able to sit at the basket in that way. So, yeah, it's a really, really interesting thing that I think Denver is going to have to solve in addition to their defense, which just also desperately needs solving on some level. Denver is in just like a really fascinating spot. They're so good because Jokic and, you know, Michael Porter is getting healthier and healthier every game. Jamal Murray is getting healthier and healthier every game. They're getting this incredible, you know, not quite all-star turn from Aaron Gordon, but like legitimate high-level starter turn from Aaron Gordon on a winning playoff team where he plays great defense and is an awesome cutter. But they still have some real flaws and some real holes. And 
they need to kind of use the deadline and use the rest of the season to try and cover those up maybe a little bit is the way to put it. Well, the the thing about the Sixers defensive scheme from Saturday was when you pressure Jokic a little bit more and you have a rim protector in Joel Embiid sitting back there and able to just dare guys to backdoor cut to him, that allows everybody else on the perimeter to pick up their pressure because they're not fearing getting backdoor cut. And when you're Jokic and you're searching for reversals, you're searching for other guys to flip the ball to that you can then go and, and, you know, one thing he's great at is using pass fakes and other means to get people open, then running into a quick kind of ball screen that he might roll off of and making good decisions from there. Those avenues are done when people can't cut to get open on the perimeter. They're going to get jammed and denied more in passing lanes. And if they backdoor, then they're just going straight into a rim protector and a guy like Embiid. So, I mean, it definitely takes a specific roster construction with what you can do in the front court to be versatile enough to put the Nuggets in that position. But I think if there are a few teams in the Western Conference that are looking around for maybe one move that they could make at the deadline to add that piece, that could cause a real problem for Denver. Well, and, you know, if you're Memphis, right, do you feel like that you might be able to play something like Santi Aldama as a seven-footer at the rim and then just have Jaron Jackson guard Nikola Jokic or vice versa, right, where you have Jaron at the rim and just deal with Aldama or, you know, have Steven Adams just try and body up Nikola Jokic, right? Like, it'll be interesting the way that teams try to operate against Jokic moving forward. And again, none of this accounts for the biggest problem that Denver has, which is the defense. And we should move to the other end of the court now where Joel Embiid was phenomenal in this game. And I feel bad that like, I feel like people are not, not noticing the Sixers. I think that people just hate watching the 76ers right now because they have James Harden and they're sick of James Harden and his, you know, passed as a foul drawing magnet. They're sick of the way Joel Embiid falls to the ground or whatever and, yeah. you know, tries to draw fouls on his own and they play these like stop starty games. Here's the thing Joel Embiid is fucking incredible at basketball. And I think there is a very real case that he is the best center in the NBA. I, I really love Nikola Jokic. I had Nikola Jokic at number two on my midseason MVP ballot, you know, quote unquote ballot that I did with Jason Timp, what, maybe three weeks ago or something. Man, it's the combination of defense at the rim for Embiid as well as the unbelievable shot creation. Everyone just acts like it's a no-brainer that Nikola Jokic is the best center in the league. And to be honest, I probably very, very, very slightly lean in that direction. But these two guys are so incredibly close is basketball players. And Joel Embiid straight up got the better of Nikola Jokic in this game. And that has to mean something on some level. Uh, You know, MVP, there's still, you know, what, a third of the season left, more than a third of the season left. Who knows where that's going to settle. I think that Joel Embiid just clearly came out. And you could see it from the moment that this game started. First offensive set. Pump fake into a mid post in the mid post into a drive and one third possession trailer drive from Embiid into a finish at the rim. Fourth possession, 18 foot jumper, nothing but net. Like you could just see totally locked in from the jump. Seventh possession for the Sixers just bullies Jokic, just like hip checks him under the rim to create that little bit of space after a dump off pass from Harden. 
finishes at the basket, right? Like you can just see that he was so, he wanted to dominate this game. He was pissed about the all-star thing where he's not an all-star starter. He's pissed about the fact that Nicole Jokic gets all this hype and credit. And he came out, he dropped 47 points and it was just clear. He was the guy on that day that was by far the best player on the court. Well, and Sam, you talked about this on your podcast earlier in the week with Mark Schindler about the defensive player of the year voting. Like there always seems to be these qualifying statements around Joel Embiid, right? Like he can play like this when he's locked in and he had every piece of motivation in the world against Denver, you know, really important, impactful game for the Sixers where he shows up like this. He plays his ass off for the entire game. And we saw what Philly is capable of at their apex because they had good performances from other guys other than just Embiid. But I'm I'm really sick of seeing kind of qualifying statements with guys where we know that they're capable of this. And then there's other games where it seems like they're very much not licked, locked in on the defensive end of the floor. And that's the thing that Philly and Embiid have kind of been fighting is this is by far the best version of them we can see. That is a championship caliber team yeah. on both ends of the floor. I think they really are. I think they really genuinely are now. But there's a but with it, right? It's if they show up and if they play this engaged all the time. And and I think that's the the lack of trust that comes into them a lot of times from the public and maybe why, you know, you're you're saying earlier people are kind of sick of watching the Sixers play. It's because you don't really know which version of them you're always going to get. So yes and no. I know what you're saying, and I agree with it to an extent. I also think that for the most part, when Embiid has been on the court, other than that little like eight game stretch to start the year, he's just been really good on off or on defense, just straight up. Like he he has just been straight up very, very good on the defensive end of the court. His rim protection has been top notch. He's been more engaged within ball screen actions. He is the guy that is kind of holding their defense up right now. PJ Tucker has been really, really good on defense and really valuable. Anthony Melton's energy and activity level uh, in those ball screen defensive possessions has been really valuable as well. And also like Matisse Thibel's having like a great limited minute, you know, season on defense. Sure. And, you know, you, you can look up and down the roster. They're just getting, they're much deeper. And this is something I want to talk about as well. They're much deeper, but I will say that like this team right now, like I actually feel pretty good about them moving forward like as a potential like nba champion right now they're 12 to 1 to win the title uh the sixer or the celtics are four to one the bucks are five and a half to one the nets nuggets are eight to one the warriors are nine to one the grizzlies are 11 to one the sixers are 12 to one they are the seventh favorite to win the title they would be in my top three for sure right now Hmm. and here's why Last year, there was just that little bit of a lack of synergy between Joel Embiid and James Harden in ball screen settings. They didn't quite have it down yet. They have it down now. These two are absolutely filthy in ball screen actions. A lot of it is Joel Embiid like short rolls. But then you look in the fourth quarter of this game and they started running these starts to these sets where it would essentially be like a stagger screen action where the first screen was Tyrese Maxey just coming up and trying to like set like a blocker screen for Harden. 
And then Embiid would come up, not really in a Spain action, but more above the break of the three-point line or like right at the three-point line to then try and get that secondary mismatch. And it was almost unguardable for the Nuggets. Like every time down, they didn't really have a way to beat it. And that's the kind of innovation that I think they didn't quite have last year, that like little extra step that they can get uh, teams, you know, just completely discombobulated uh, at the point of attack against Harden. Here's the other thing. I know James Harden's only averaging 21 points. He's averaging like 12 assists a game so far this year, 11 to 12 assists a game. He has been unbelievable since he got back from that little stretch where he was out. He has been, I think, at like 21 points, 12 assists, three to one assist to turnover ratio, seven rebounds, shooting like 46% from the field, 41% from three, obviously makes all of his free throws. He has just been absolutely unbelievable. I would like, he is a no doubter all-star for me. Yeah. Like not even a question in my mind. Like yeah. I would have, I mentioned this on Twitter, but like I would have both Tyrese Halliburton and James Harden as all-stars this year. I think they're both more than qualified and deserving. I would have them over guys like Jalen Brunson. I'd have them over guys like Trey Young. Uh, I would, you know, Jalen Brown, that's kind of a different conversation and a harder conversation to have because he's listed as a guard. But, you know, he has to be there, I think, at the end of the day. I think those are the three that I would have. I would have one of them in a wild card spot, and I would have Brown and Harden in the two guard spots. So I'd have Halliburton in the wild card spot. If you look at Harden's numbers versus, you know, we're all, and look, I don't mean to make this like the Halliburton versus uh, Harden mess here, but I think they're actually kind of playing somewhat stylistically similar this season is almost why I bring it up. Uh, They're both averaging right around 21 points, 11 assists, six, in Harden's case, six rebounds. Halliburton is at 20 points, 10 assists, four rebounds. Uh, Harden has a better true shooting percentage. On top of it, there's this idea that James Harden is just a creation of Joel Embiid this season. And that just is not true. You look at their play-by-play stats, uh, you know, Daryl Blackport's terrific site. You look at the Sixers with James Harden on the court, Joel Embiid off the court. They have a net rating of plus 2.1. When Tyrese Halliburton is on the court for the Pacers, they have a net rating of like negative 0.1, basically. Uh, I think that, yeah, it's negative 0.1. So they're slightly losing the minutes where Halliburton's out there. It's fine. Like they're still 22 and 18 when he plays games. Like he's not the reason they're losing those minutes. But I think the Sixers are a better team when James Harden is out there versus the Pacers when Halliburton is out there. And you can say that, like, yeah, the Sixers are a better team, right? I don't know. I mean, Miles Turner would be the third, you know, if we're counting, you know, those 10 players potentially that would be on the court, you know, saying that James Harden and Tyrese Halliburton are one and two in some order, right? The next best player out of that group is Miles Turner, if we take Joel Embiid off the court, right? Like, unequivocally. Yeah, he's probably all due respect. Yeah. 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 Like, all due respect to, like, you know, Maxi, you know, uh, Tobias Harris, PJ Tucker, all those guys. 
Buddy Hill's shooting a billion percent from three on like incredible volume this season. He's been great. I, I would say like his season has been pretty close to Maxi's, if we're being honest. So I don't know. Like, I don't think the lineup difference is actually that substantial either. So I would have Harden ahead of Halliburton, but that's more of a statement of me saying that that is how good James Harden has been this season. His distribution, his passing, his playmaking has gone completely under the radar and it needs so, so much more attention. He deserves so much credit for the way he has integrated himself into being that number two option for the 76ers on top of it. Like, you know, one of the pushbacks I got from Pacers fans was, Oh, if you take Tyrese Halliburton off of the Pacers, they've completely fallen apart. And they are, I think they're like two and nine in games where Halliburton doesn't play. It is so, so, so much harder in the NBA to go from a 500 team, which is like right around what the Pacers are, to being a 70% winning percentage team right around where the 76ers are, as opposed to going from like a 30% winning percentage team to a 50% winning percentage team, or even like a 20, like you you could even say that like, it's harder to go from 20% or to go from 50 to 70 than it is from 20 to 50, I think, even though, that difference is greater when it's 20 to 50. It is so hard to win at the highest levels of the NBA and the 76ers are doing it. I am a big believer in this team. They're way deeper. The guy that's really stood out recently is, you know, George Niang. Niang, They don't, yeah, they don't win that game last night without George Niang. So the score is 99, 84. George Niang hits back-to-back threes out on the semi break to get it to 99 to 90. Then Jamal Murray commits an offensive foul. Joel Embiid gets an and one when, you know, they take Nikola Jokic off the court for a minute. So they have Jeff Green guarding him. Then they bring Jokic back on for the offensive possession. He throws just like a terrible lob to Jeff Green and Embiid breaks it up. He gets the ball, gets fouled, takes that weird like three quarter court shot that he gets fouled on. And, you know, then it's your 12 0 run. It's 99 96 entering the fourth quarter. And all bets are off. And then Niang later in the fourth quarter hits that like miracle corner three from the Harden inbounds pass where the Nuggets just like completely break down and like forget he's out there. And it's just like this, what are we doing Denver? But also like they're so much deeper. They have so many different options to create in those settings, I think. So I really, really like Philly. I get that like people in the public seem to be down on them. As long as Embiid and Harden are healthy, I believe in this team like very I think they are like clearly the number two team I would bet on the in the East. And I, I would feel better about them than most of the teams in the West right now, honestly, including Denver. Because I just think Denver has more holes that are exploitable in the playoffs than Philly does. Yeah, Philly is a little bit deeper, both in terms of just how many players they can have off their bench, but the different holes that they can cover up based on what their opponent brings to the table. You can throw DeAnthony Melton out on different backcourt scores. You can have Thibel out there for periods of time. Niang is going to come in and be the least gun-shy human being you'll ever find on the planet. Like, if he's open, it's going up. You know, like, Montrez Harrell can score against opposing bigs off the bench and kind of carry a little bit of offense in the pick and roll if you need to. I think that's an underrated pairing and maybe why Harden is doing so well when Embiid sits is because you actually have it like a decently offensively minded 
pick and roll big and partner for their guards to be able to run with. So I like the way that Philly is set up from a depth perspective, and it's going to give Doc Rivers a lot of different buttons to press in the playoffs. I just want to make sure that that we're very clear on one thing, Sam. He can't sit all of his starters at the same time in the postseason. Like he's going to have to juggle those lineups if we're going to trust the Sixers to make a run to the finals. Yeah, like that is my main concern about the 76ers right now is Doc Rivers. But you know what? He's getting a little bit more creative offensively, as I mentioned earlier. There have been some really interesting things that have happened in Philly that at least give me like a glimmer of hope that Doc won't fuck this up. Um, Yeah, I I, I believe in the 76ers in a real way that concerns me. At the yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I know you wanted to talk Nuggets defense at some point. Can I propose that we come back to that in a later, later segment? Because I think yeah, it's, let's, it's let's really relevant to what we're going to talk about a little bit later on. Totally. So let's take a quick break, and then we're going to jump in to Lakers-Celtics. I don't think we're going to spend quite as much time on that game, but what a weird shit show that yeah. was. Okay, we're back. Let's go to Lakers Celtics. Uh, I talked a lot about the last game. I'll give you the the floor to start this game. Uh, What were your overall impressions of what was just a batshit crazy ending, largely due to the officials? Yeah, look, the the officiating stuff stands out on its own, and the Lakers probably should have come away with a victory in that one without too much consternation. Um, Did they shoot themselves in the foot in certain regards and then appear completely unmotivated in overtime as a result of that? Yes, they absolutely did. And I think that there's been two recurring themes we've seen with the Lakers. One is that they don't, for a LeBron James-led team, have the same mental fortitude and toughness to really persevere through those tough situations that we've grown used to seeing LeBron teams have. The other part of this is that the Celtics were really light on defensive presences in that game. And I thought that the Lakers weren't creative enough, particularly down the stretch, to try to make up for that and find, particularly in a late game, the right aspects that you need to attack defensively time and time and time again when Rob Williams is off the floor and and Marcus Smart's not not really out there. So I don't disagree with you that the Lakers are just not creative. My problem is that they just don't have the means to be able to be creative. Sure. Right. Like I I don't really blame Darvin ham there. I blame like this whole thing for me, for the Lakers is about the front office. This team has shown time and time again, that they are somewhat ready to compete against really good teams. They have competed against almost every good team they have played. It feels like. They've beaten the Bucs. They've played two incredibly tight games against Boston at this point. Uh, all, it feels like every game that they play, you know, terrible team, good team, it's probably going to be close. Yeah. But I don't know. Well, like, I, I guess my point is, like, I don't know what you want them to do in those settings other than run, like, the LeBron AD high screen and roll, which, which is basically what you kind of have to do when you have those two guys. But also, they're just not amplified within that setting right now 
when you're closing, you know, or at least in like the late fourth quarter, you know, Rui Achimura and Troy Brown are out on the yeah. court together. And Dennis Schroeder is out there and Patrick yeah. Beverly is out there. Like, all due respect to Patrick Beverly, who has made shots previously in his career, nobody really cares if he's shooting. Nope. Like, there's just no, like, they will leave him open at the expense of stopping the LeBron AD pick and roll. Uh, they will leave Dennis Schroeder open from three at the expense of stopping that action. This team just has no shooting, no complimentary pieces for that primary play that they should run at the end of games. I feel like that more than anything, you know, people will point to Russ. And by the way, Russ is a symptom of this, in my opinion, because Russ is, you know, someone that does not have a lot of off ball gravity uh, in any way, shape or form. That's why the Russell Westbrook closing lineups often have been unsuccessful for the Lakers this season. But they just don't have anybody that amplify these close late game lineups that the Lakers put out there with LeBron and AD. That's period point blank. And oh, by the way, they went out and acquired another one in Rui that also (sighs) does not amplify it. Uh, I thought he was really bad in that game, if I'm being and completely honest. Really bad on defense. And that's yeah. what really really has caught up to them is when they try to make or lean into some of those more, you know, offensive minded lineups, whether it's having another scoring threat out there like Rui or trying to space the floor more where they played smaller late with Schroeder and with Pat Beverly, like there are just some defense they're really small when they do that, when they put Schroeder and Beverly out there in the backcourt, and Boston yep. can annihilate them as a result. Yeah, like you just saw at one point, like Malcolm Brogdon just like bullied Patrick Beverly. Like all Many respect, points. again, yeah. to Patrick Beverly, who has been a great defender in this league and, you know, still is effective and pesty defensively at the very least. He's just bigger. And like there was a point where he just like put his shoulder into him and just like got to the rim and finished with an easy finger roll. Right. Yep. Uh, it, it's really, really hard, I think, for those lineups to succeed. the Lakers just have to make more moves that they, this team deserves finding out if they can compete in the West. Uh, The Western conference is a mess right now. It is a total, total mess. There is no reason that the Lakers, if they go out and get guys who can shoot and defend and actually like compliment guys like Anthony Davis and LeBron, they can contend like they can be a good solid team that has a chance to make a run in the playoffs like they have proven it at this point and oh by the way like the refs frankly have stolen a couple of games from them like inarguably like i'm not a lakers fan i like don't like i don't really like i like lebron i'm not like some like stan that's like trying to you know curry favor with lakers fans they they have had multiple games stolen from them by officials this year and this was one of them. The very, very obvious foul on Jason Tatum hitting LeBron's arm on the drive at the end of the game should have put LeBron at the line with like 0.7 seconds left, shooting two in a foul in a tie game, right? There is something like a 90% chance he makes one of those two free throws and they win the game. So I just, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really struggling with it right now like i'm really struggling with that front office just like hanging lebron and ad kind of out to dry 
Well, I, I think the tough part about it is there doesn't seem to be a ton of belief in who they have right now as a result. Like they're still winning games and being competitive, but when it gets close later, as we saw at the end of overtime last night, there was just a head scratching belief or drive to try to make the right plays happen. If you're the Lakers, like, you know, they got beat down the floor after a make by Jalen Brown who ends up getting free throws out of it. They just took their time on that last possession that they got offensively. They were slow to foul when they, uh, you know, the first were trying to get a trap against Boston, got over the half-court line, and they were slow to foul after at that point. And then the last trip down ended up being an, an AD made three at the top of the key, but it took 11 seconds in order to get that off and left no time on the clock. The, the yeah. late-game management from this team, while the coaching didn't seem to be great in those moments, the players have to have a desire and a passion to just go and make some of those plays. And it very much felt like once the referees were against them, so to speak, and they didn't get the result in in regulation and, and got off the you know a poor start to the overtime period, they kind of called it quits a little bit. And that, to me, is really, really concerning because that's not a LeBron-led team. That doesn't happen. Well, I don't even know that they – like, they, they fought back in overtime. Like, they they – you know, they got down six. They got down 113, mm-hmm. 107 after that Jalen Brown three. Yep. And they didn't roll over. Like, I thought they very well could have rolled over in that setting after the LeBron foul, after the Beverly yeah. technical. The great, greatest technical ever, by the way. Greatest one ever. One of the funniest things yeah. I think I've ever seen a player do on yeah. an NBA court. <laughs> like, just straight up. Amazing. Grabbed a camera and showed the official. That is... Honestly, I I love that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it definitely like screwed the Lakers a little bit, but that's just some amazing <laughs> shit. Uh, but the guy that for the Celtics just like completely took over was Jalen Brown. He had 20 points in like the last six minutes of the fourth quarter in overtime. He was phenomenal uh, over that stretch. And again, like I think it goes to show the Lakers like that's that's actually the guy that was getting the significant mismatches. Like they did whatever they could with their size and length to take away Jason Tatum. But whenever you just have multiple smaller guys out there, Patrick Beverly, Dennis Schroeder, Russell Westbrook, Lonnie Walker, um, you know, even like Troy Brown isn't a great matchup for him because he's not athletic enough. Like it, it just sets you up for failure against teams that have multiple yeah. shot creating ball handling wings. And Boston's so built to beat that because they're so huge across the board. Like Brogdon had a phenomenal game and he's so, so good for them off the bench. He knows exactly what to do within his role. Like I thought that Tatum wasn't great and definitely the Lakers focused on him. But when you have Brogdon playing as well as he did and then, you know, Jalen able to step up late the way that, that he was just so good in those periods, like, yeah, the Celtics were able to eke out an overtime win without, arguably their best defender in Rob Williams and, and Marcus Smart. So, you know, hats off to the Celtics for being able to do that. Obviously, the referees, and, and we can continue to hit home on that point there. But I think the Celtics on their own right have figured out who needs to step up when if Tatum is getting a ton of extra attention or having a little bit of an yeah. off night. Just to finish on the officials, right? Like, sure. officiating's hard. I get yes. it. Um I thought Jeff Van Gundy actually brought up a really good point in that game. We need to make it so that when you challenge and you win the challenge, you keep the challenge. I agree. That, that's actually like a really essential thing that like, I, I hope that they change that tomorrow. Like they won't like they'll go through the rules committee and everything to change it in the off season. 
that is a thing that desperately needs to change. I get that we don't want to like inundate the game with like officiating and with going to the monitor and slowing the game down. That is something that's a no brainer. You should not be penalized by officials missing calls and you having to challenge them to get them right. If you, if the official gets it wrong or if the official got it right and you got it wrong as a challenger, you should lose your challenge and not be able to do it, but you should not be penalized by the official getting a call wrong. And unfortunately the Lakers this season have been penalized far too often by officials getting calls wrong at the end of the day. Yeah. Common Van Gundy W right there. That was a good take. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a really good take from Jeff Van Gundy. Um, Okay. And he's, he's not the first person to say that either, but you know, during the game, he was very harsh and strong on that opinion. And I thought it was a good move from him to be that. Okay. Next up, Miles Turner extension. One of the most interesting extensions I have seen in the NBA in a while. And it's something that if you listen to shows I've done with Danny LaRue, if you listen to Danny, if you listen to my Twitter feed, like the renegotiation and extension is something that we have been calling for, for the Indiana Pacers to do with Miles Turner. So the structure of this, according to Shams, is it's essentially $58 million added on to Miles Turner's contract. He gets $17 million this season in extra salary. This is a possibility that the Pacers could look into and negotiate with Miles Turner because they have so much cap space right now. Other teams like can't just randomly do this. You have to have cap space to be able to do this. Then they added on basically $41 million over the next two years. It's $21 million next season. And then it's $20 million in, I believe, what would that be? 2024, 25, right? Spins. So, really, really, really sharp contract structure from the Indiana Pacers. An incredibly obvious one, in my opinion, but we've seen teams not do this before with the renegotiation and extension. I've seen some people ask, why don't the Spurs do this with Jakob Pertl? They have cap space. They have, um, you know, a seeming desire to retain Jakob Pertl. It's because for whatever reason within the CBA, a very stupid law within the CBA, you can only extend people in this function that are on four-year deals as opposed to three-year deals, which is what Jakob Pertl is on. It's a really dumb rule. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, the Spurs should be able to do this if they want to keep Jakob Pertl. I digress, though. What was your overall impression when you saw the Miles Turner extension announcement, Adam? Uh, I was really thrilled with the cap mechanics. I don't want to call it gymnastics <laughs> because there wasn't much bending that needed to be done by the Pacers in order to make this happen. But I always love seeing really good players get rewarded with a contract extension and know that they're going to be valued in the place where they currently are. And for Miles Turner in particular, He has dealt with a lot of trade rumors over the last several seasons. I mean, I've been reading annually now Caitlin Cooper articles about where is he going to end up? Who's going to trade for Miles Turner? The fit with him and Demonis Sabonis doesn't work really well. And then they cleared out Sabonis. Everyone thought they were going to, you know, go in the tanker this year. And it became, uh, 
who's going to trade for Miles Turner then? Because the Pacers have this large expiring contract and might want to be able to get the best players and best young asset package that they can back in return. And Miles has been a huge professional throughout all of that. He's been so impactful. I'd say the second most important piece to this Pacers team, bar none, with Tyrese Halliburton. He's so good and underrated in a lot of different ways. He's one of three big men in the game right now that has 53s and 75 blocks on the year. It's him, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Brooke Lopez. And those two guys are front runners for Defensive Player of the Year. Turner is locking down the basket. He's spacing the floor. He does so many good little things through the flow of play. Uh, I just I love the fact that he's been rewarded and can have some of that patience. Now, I know a trade isn't off the table for, for Miles. This extension doesn't mean that he's locked into being in Indiana for a long time. But hopefully it gives him just a little bit more security and belief in what they're building in Indiana. I'd like to see him stick around for the long term because he's a great fit with Hallie. Yeah, so worth noting, Miles Turner is still trade eligible. Like this extension does not stop him from being able to be traded at the deadline. Uh, He can still be moved. Obviously, there is like a functional difference between Miles Turner on an expiring contract versus Miles Turner now on what is essentially a very team-friendly contract moving forward. But, you know, we're talking about this in a team-friendly construct. It's worth noting that this is very valuable for Miles Turner. I don't really see a world where Miles Turner was getting $30 million on the market this offseason. As good as he is, like that money just really wasn't there from any team across the league, if you look at it. And I think Miles Turner is great. I think he he probably would have gotten something like $24 million a year. Maybe would have gotten like a four-year $100 million deal. But because of this extra added $60 million, He's going to be able to hit free agency again at age 29 where basically to make himself whole on what he could have gotten, let's say, it this offseason. He's only going to have to make $20 million a year in what projects to be a much yeah. more beneficial circumstance in terms of TV money for the players moving forward. Like the way that player salaries are about to skyrocket due to this upcoming TV deal is going to be pretty substantial. So he's going to be able to hit free agency again and probably will end up getting $30 million a year when the cap goes nuts again. So really, really good deal kind of across the board. This is always why I thought that this made sense in terms of an extension. Uh, The mechanics were always there to do this. And again, it doesn't stop them from trading him. Like if a team comes over the top and is like, we'll give you a crazy amount of value for Miles Turner now, who's on this incredible contract, can still do it, right? Like here's here's the other funny thing, right? Let's say that the team really wants to go down the road of the DeAndre Ayton deal that the team tried to do last offseason, right? The Phoenix Suns are a team that could really potentially look at Miles Turner as a shakeup move if they feel like they need a shakeup move. And this actually makes it way easier to do a DeAndre yeah. Ayton deal now uh, if that's something that they want to do. Uh, I don't I don't see that on the cards, to be completely sure. honest. Like, I think Miles Turner is going to stick around in Indiana. But, like, if Phoenix made it worth their while, maybe maybe that's something they would consider. I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff out there that seems 
reasonable and logical. Here's the thing about Miles Turner. Here's why I like this for the Pacers and why I would keep Miles Turner. It is exceptionally hard to find guys that almost certainly amplify almost anyone else on the court uh, and completely open up your roster flexibility moving forward. Miles Turner for a team that is rebuilding theoretically in Indiana, like they still have some moves that they need to make in order to contend. They should be trying to have as much flexibility as possible, keep their cap sheet as clean as possible in theory. But Turner is an amplifier for good players, in my opinion. He is a top 10 defender in the NBA. We talked about him last week on the Defensive Player of the Year conversation uh, with Mark Schindler. I think I would have him seventh or eighth right now in the Defensive Player of the Year race. Uh, he is a legit 35 to 36% three-point shooter. You kind of have to pay attention to him out there. He's also, since Damana Sabonis has gone, very clearly improved his ball skills in a pretty tangible way that allows him to be somewhat impactful as a player. I I just really like everything that Miles Turner has done over the course of this last little while to subtly improve his game while also being a player that really helps young players develop and win. Uh you know, he, he doesn't doesn't hinder them moving forward. This is a great value contract, still has a ton of trade value. Uh, he's a great partner to have with Tyrese Halliburton. Most importantly, though, is there a team that's looking for, you know, the next star that they can bring in, the next guy, right? He doesn't limit them from a fit perspective at all. Neither does Tyrese Halliburton, right? Like the Knicks have Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson together on that roster that does kind of limit the flexibility in terms of like, if they wanted to bring in a front court player, they would have to think about the way that that guy fits with Mitchell Robinson or with Julius Randall, right? Because they're both players that take substantial things off of the table while also adding like remarkable things in the additions way outweigh the subtractions in both cases. But they do take some things off the table. Miles Turner doesn't really take anything off of the table. Uh, from a team building perspective, you could maybe say like he takes playmaking and passing off of the table, which is why I'm like a little bit. I, I saw someone in the comments ask maybe about like a John Collins move. Uh, I want to shout him out. Gregory Castillo, uh, while we're doing this on YouTube, shouted out a John Collins potential move. I'd be a little bit worried about like ball movement with that duo together. Yeah. Uh I'm actually going to write about this this week. The team that I think should really chase John Collins is Oklahoma City as a pairing with Chet Holmgren because Chet can really pass at a higher level than Miles and you know has that shooting potential in a real way. It, it's a similar kind of fit, but I think it would open up Chet to maybe not get as much wear and tear on his body in addition to I think it's just a slightly better fit because Chet can play with the ball in his hands just a little bit more than Miles can as a passer and playmaker. That's neither here nor there. But that's really like the only thing that you have to worry about with Miles is like you want to find a four that is like a comfortable passer and playmaker, I think. Doesn't have to be great at it, just has to be like okay at it in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's really it. And that's why it's so valuable. We we look at how teams are are building their rosters now and what maybe the next wave of, of you know roster construction might be. I look to Cleveland and I see where Jared Allen and Evan Mobley have fit in yep. really well as two huge guys that can both protect the rim a little bit and be versatile on defense. Like Miles Turner is going to be much more of the Jared Allen in that situation, but his floor yep. spacing ability on offense 
could lead a pairing like that to work. So uh, I, I just think Miles is hugely underrated in national circles in the NBA. I always root for players to get the bag and have really good uh, good contract situations and ways that work out well for them. We check both of those boxes here where we're shedding light on a really good player and taking care of him financially with this deal. So I'm, I'm thrilled for Miles. Completely right. I think this is a home run for Indiana yeah. across the board, and it's a home run for Miles Turner. It just works out in every way, shape, and form. Okay. The next thing we wanted to talk about here, number four on our five-point docket. Players across the league, like really, really young guys that currently project to have critical roles in the NBA playoffs for teams that are potentially contending. Why are we talking about this now? It's important for those teams to understand how much they trust players like Marjan Beauchamp in the case of Milwaukee, Christian Brown in the case of Denver, AJ Griffin in the case of Atlanta. These teams have to kind of make this determination now in terms of whether or not they believe these guys can hold up on the court in the playoffs. If they feel like they can't, they kind of have to make moves now at the deadline in order to potentially fix that, in order to potentially uh, help their team and their vets compete at the highest level. So the team that stood out most to me with this is New Orleans, just straight up, right? Whenever you brought up this idea, this is a great Adam Spinella idea, by the way, certainly not mine, to talk about this. New Orleans has three guys that are just really essential for them on some level. Dyson Daniels and Herb Jones are incredibly impactful defenders. Herb has been in this prolonged slump uh, as an offensive player this season, and it's going to be interesting to see if he can break out of it over the next little while. Trey Murphy has just been like a critical key cog for them because of his shooting. He's a pretty solid defender. He's the guy I kind of have the least worries about. Dyson Daniels is a real potential offensive liability as well, just given that he doesn't really like to take shots. He is just purely a ball mover. And I worry that teams might just go, okay, if you're not going to shoot and you're not really a threat to score, we're just kind of not going to guard you. And we're going to close off all the passing lanes for you. What do you think of where new Orleans sits right now and what they should kind of look to prioritize with some of these young guys? Like, should they, really just try and continue along the developmental trajectory with them and look at their window as, you know, this season, if these guys come along, but more likely next season and the season after when they continue to develop further, or do they look to move maybe one of these guys, maybe a Herb Jones and try and acquire something like a boy on Bogdanovich, which is a name that I think makes a lot of sense for them as a floor spacing shooter this is why this is a really tricky and important conversation to have now, because you're talking about real like opportunity costs of like playoff basketball at this point. Yeah. So playoff basketball is very different than regular season basketball in the sense that you game plan so specifically for your opponent to try to take away their strengths and force them to operate through their shortcomings on the offensive end of the floor. You want to exploit them by saying, I dare you to do this. And if this is how you're going to beat us in a best of seven series, this is the way that we're going to choose that you do that. And and I've been reminded of this topic a little bit as we're in playoff football mode right now. 
I think that there's a question that gets thrown out a lot about the value of experience in postseason series, right? And we've kind of felt that a little bit. Obviously, injury for the 49ers-Eagles game played a factor, but everyone was talking about Brock Purdy being a, a rookie quarterback trying to lead a team to the, the Super Bowl and how rare that was. To me, it seems like coaches a lot of times will excuse younger players if they don't do well and say, you know, we just kind of lack experience and this is a great learning tool for us. But when things go well for them, they're saying, well, you know, experience doesn't really matter. We just have really good players who are going to go out there and figure it out. So I've never been able to figure out a straight answer or a feel for really does experience matter in some of these settings, particularly if you have one of those weaknesses, if you have something that is easily exploitable in a postseason series. And I feel like at least for two of these guys on the Pelicans in Herb Jones and Dyson Daniels, they absolutely do. They are going to be forced in a best of seven series to counteract teams daring Herb Jones and Dyson Daniels to shoot. And when you look at the rest of the roster construction for the Pelicans in playoff settings, when they want to maximize minutes for their best players and keep them on the floor, you're going to want to see a lot of Jonas Valanciunas, and a lot of Zion Williamson. And if that's the case, you need floor spacing. You need shooting around them. You need to clean up the lane so that those guys can both be impactful on the offensive end of the floor. I don't know if you can really survive for long stretches of time with a guy like Herb Jones on the floor as a result of that. You can look at his postseason minutes last year, and he played a lot of them, but that was in a series without Zion. Everything changes when you put Zion on the floor with more than one non-shooter. And that's what really is going to worry me for the Pelicans. So I agree with that. The, the thing that, the thing that I feel like I still don't have a great, like general feel for maybe is the way to put it. I don't know yet what this team is when all of Zion CJ and Brandon Ingram are on the court together. That trio has, according to play-by-play stats, again, Daryl Blackport's great site, they've only played 172 minutes together this season. They have clobbered in those minutes. They have won them by 14.4 points per 100 possessions. They have a 122 offensive rating and a 107 defensive rating. Like, they are kicking the shit out of teams. And, like, you get all three of those guys on the court together, And then you have Larry Nance if you want to play small. You have Jonas if you want to play big. That's your four. And then you might only have to have one of these guys. Maybe you go Trey Murphy. Maybe you go Dyson for defense. You know, maybe you go, you know, Najee Marshall because you want Najee out there. Maybe it's Jose Alvarado if you want to try and speed teams up. Uh, They just have so many different options to be able to bring if all of these guys are healthy and on the court together. And if you trust this 172-minute sample that we've seen that says, okay, no, this team's really good when these guys are out there. Like, this team can really play. So, in that vein, it's hard. I think I would be patient if I was New Orleans. Me too. Me too. And I think I would trust the young guys. I would not move all that it would take. So, Kyle Metz in the comments on YouTube, for instance, just said – Herb Jones, Jackson Hayes, Devontae Graham, 2027 Milwaukee first for Boyan Bogdanovich and Rodney Magruder. 
I think value-wise, that's like not that far off in terms of what Boyan should and will go for. I don't think I would do it nope. if I was New Orleans. Like, like, and I actually am someone that like really thinks that like Herb Jones is a player that they should explore moving because I, mm-hmm. I struggle to see the fit with all three of those guys plus Trey Murphy plus Dyson Daniels. And I just value Dyson and Trey a little bit more than I value her. Right. And, and frankly, they have Najee Marshall as well. Who's turned into a really good impactful yep. defender, mm-hmm. um, you know, really valuable slasher for them gets out in transition, does really impactful things. So I, I'm good with them using Herb as a trade chip. Like I, I think that it's a reasonable, smart move to do so. I think he will have real value around the league as well. Part of me just says, be patient with this group. Like, can you play both Trey Murphy and her Trey Murphy and Boyan together with that group? Like, can you play CJ Brandon Ingram, Trey Murphy, Boyan Bogdanovich, and then Zion? I don't know. I don't really think you can get away defensively at the rim with that. No, I think Boyan is like, much better than Trey Murphy is right now. I don't know if that's true next year. Boyan will be a year older. Trey Murphy will be a year older and more experienced. Much better defensively. Trey Mur- like I think that it will get closer and closer as this thing goes on. So I think I would just be patient. I know that that's like a shitty answer for the Pelicans fans, but like, I think they have every reason to be patient because again, we haven't seen their best three players on the court together all that much this season. If they get CJ and Zion and Brandon on the court all together at once and they start to roll teams again, like I think they're probably going to, if I'm being completely honest with you, I think they're going to regret like giving up future assets from this tool chest that they have, which is just absolutely enormous for a guy like Boyan that you know, probably plays this year in real minutes for them, but I don't know if he is like a future, you know, he's definitely a future rotation guy, but like probably not a future closing lineup guy for them after this season. Uh, If you really believe in Trey Murphy, the way I believe in Trey Murphy, Uh, if you believe in Dyson Daniels is like a perfect compliment for CJ McCollum in the backcourt in the way that I believe he is. So I would be patient if I was new Orleans, I, I would Trust that you're going to get healthier. Trust you're going to get Zion back. If Zion's out, you're fucked anyway. So yeah. like it, it's it doesn't matter almost what move you make. Um, so I I would just wait. I would be yep. patient. I would not make a move if yep. I'm New Orleans, which is not exciting. But you know I, I would hold off. I agree. I will and say again. like if OG and Anobi came available, that's one that I would have real interest in. Yeah, um, but I would not have that much interest in Boyan personally. Yeah, and and look, I think in this conversation, I agree with you. Hold tight, keep the guys that you have. If there's one who I think gets squeezed in the postseason most between Daniels, Herb, and Trey Murphy, I think it's probably Herb. Actually, uh, that it's more so about well, and, like, and Najee Marshall is in that mix and, as well. Like, Najee I think Marshall's Najee would play or, over Herb right now yep. in a playoff game. Yeah, I just I think that we're going to see too much of the Andre Robertson treatment for him where if you try to put him in a corner, he's just completely ignored in those settings. And that does so much damage to the rim attacking prowess of a guy like Zion. I just, I I don't know if you can do it. 
and this is all due respect to Herb, who is still one of the, you know, 25 best defenders in the league. I don't know if I, you know, whatever the number is, right. I threw out a number off the top of my head. I'm not, you know, being specific about it, but he's a great defender. He is really genuinely valuable on that end. It's just hard, I think, to, you know, to, to make it work lineup wise when they have yeah. all these other options. That's that's uh, right. He he can play in a postseason series, but just yeah. not when he's next to Zion and Jonas and the way that the, the Pelicans kind of need to be built because I, I really worry defensively, particularly in the postseason, looking at how potent a lot of these Western Conference offenses are with any minutes that you would give to Zion at the five. I don't know yeah. if, the, if the Pelicans are ready for that yet. And as a result, that's just going to squeeze a non-shooting bigger winger forward from the rotation. It's It's got to be hurt. Okay. Let's go to the Bucs now. Sure. The Bucs are in an interesting spot. They, they might not need Marjan Beauchamp in the playoffs. Like, it's very clear, though, that the Bucs are being, I don't know about aggressive at the deadline, but they're they're having real negotiations. Every report that you see is that, you can, you know, imagine a Grayson Allen trade. You can imagine them bringing in Jay Crowder. You can imagine them trying to do like a smaller deal. Like I saw one that said like they were looking at Cam Reddish, right? I think that might have been Mike Scotto who reported that at Hoops Hype. Um, shout out, Mike. I'm not 100% sure if that was him. But it seems like they're looking for more wing depth. It seems like to me, frankly, that they don't trust Grayson Allen to hold up defensively in the playoffs in the way they might need him to. Uh, here's the thing. I'm like not a hundred percent convinced that they like totally need him to. Uh, you're going to be able to play Giannis, Drew, and Chris Middleton. And again, like if Chris Middleton is out, I think that they're screwed anyway, playoffs right. wise, just kind of is what it is. Um, you're probably going to be able to play Brooke for a substantial period of time in the playoffs. So that's four. Pat Connaughton is not having like the most efficient year in the world, but is still a guy that I trust to hold up in the playoffs. I really like what I've seen from Joe Ingles so far in terms of like their ball movement and in terms of getting that offense a bit more into motion and a bit more active. I mean, like the, you might need some minutes from like an extra wing, but more than anything, I feel like what they're looking for is like another club in the bag where they can find another like PJ Tucker ish player like Jay Crowder that allows them to go smaller more often with Giannis Antetokounmpo at the five. So it's interesting. They just like, if I was them, I would continue to look into these avenues. And if I could do Grayson Allen and like second round picks for something like that, I probably would. And I think that then you wouldn't need Marjan Beauchamp. I also don't know that I like completely trust Marjan in the playoffs either. I just don't trust him enough as a shooter. Yeah. I, so the Bucks are, are obviously famed for wanting guys that are going to space the floor that have length on defense. They like to play a little bit bigger with some of their lineups and the versatility of having Giannis at the five in moments when Brooke Lopez comes off is certainly what they're chasing right now at the trade deadline. I mean, Beauchamp is 32 and a half, almost 33% from three, under 40% from the field. I like the energy that he defends with. I think that he plays well in transition, but that's not yep. always a play style that translates to the postseason when it's a lot more half-court based. If you're able to turn it into an yep. up-and-down game, if your defense is really going to cause turnovers and havoc, that sounds more like a first-round series to me. 
But when they get into the nitty-gritty of games against Boston and Philly, when it becomes a, a bloodbath in the half court, or even Brooklyn, who has so many savvy scorers and spaces the floor well, I think it's going to be tough for him to be positively impactful when he's on the floor. I think he can go out there yeah. and give you solid minutes where you maybe don't notice him a ton, but I don't know if that's necessarily what the bu- the Bucks are looking for when they do have avenues like trading Grayson Allen or trying to acquire another piece that they can add, which would be better served for postseason success than Beauchamp. Well, and on top of it as well, like they have other options. They have Jordan Wara. They have Wes Matthews, who, you know, Wes has been not great this season, but they can at least, you know, maybe try and run him out there. Maybe he is done in the playoffs. I I would not want to run Wes Matthews out there in the playoffs right now, frankly. But, you know, they have a lot of these like depth wing options that they can, you know, give it a shot, basically. I would be looking for an upgrade though, if I was them. And it seems like they are, I, I think that they are uh, smart to be trying to look out on the market, see what's available. Uh, the, the guy that like just does, I think make sense for them depending on the price is Jay Crowder. Uh, I mean, like if they could go get PJ Washington, that'd be nice, but I think PJ is probably too expensive yeah. at this point for them. I mean, you know, Alec Burks doesn't really fit a lot of what they need, but probably would be a good fit within this offense in terms of like being a great shooter. I just don't know that he's, you know, he he is probably, I don't know, he's probably not a better defender than Grayson Allen is at this point, but he is a better shooter and just like a more offensively versatile player. Uh, th- that That could be an option for them. But it's just hard to find the right guy, right? Like Eric Gordon's probably the right guy, but they just don't have the salary matching mechanism to be able to do it. Um, You know, Terrence Ross takes similar amounts of defense off the floor if you go out and get him. Uh, You know, Doug McDermott takes similar amounts of mobility off the floor if you go out and try and get him. Uh, Also, relatively bigger salary that doesn't totally work for them. So, you know, maybe a name is Sadiq Bey if they really wanted to, like, try and, you know, go for it. But I just don't even know if they have the assets to be able to do that unless Detroit is way more down on Sadiq Bey than what I'm thinking they are. And on top of it, you're probably going to have to pay Sadiq Bey – if not this offseason, then next offseason when he hits restricted free agency. So, yeah, no, if I was them, I I would be looking for an upgrade in the Jay Crowder mold. I think Jay is probably the name. And, you know, if you're Phoenix, we'll see what they end up getting. It seems like the price tag that they're holding to is still a bit too high for Jay, and there's a reason that a deal hasn't been done yet, even though he hasn't played since the start of the season. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, simple. I I think with with Beauchamp, like he's not a guy that I would be looking to move in the sense of getting an upgrade. I think you have other pieces on the roster, like a Grayson Allen, that you would be able to throw in, or you know Serge Ibaka's salary filler if it ends up being that way. Like there are there yeah. are other avenues that they can take. I think Marjan fits them really well long term. I just don't think he's ready to help a team that has clear finals aspirations this year. Okay, let's let's go to Denver because you wanted to talk about Denver's defense. Uh, this is where the concern comes in. So you and I both really like Christian Brown a lot. And I really like Christian Brown quite a bit. Um, 
I have some concerns about Christian Brown being able to hold up in lineups with the bench unit that the Nuggets have a tendency to run him out with. If you look at lineups with Bones Highland and Christian Brown, uh, which have only played 299 minutes this season, but you know they're a minus 7.4 in those minutes. They give up 120 points per 100 possessions. By the way, I think Christian Brown actually helps with the defense when he's out there because particularly Bones Highland has been kind of egregiously bad on defense this season. He has been like an impactful offensive player and has been useful for the Nuggets in stretches. But when Highland is out there without Christian Brown, uh, that's for 517 minutes this year. Uh, they give up 123.6 points per 100 possessions per play-by-play stats. So it's hard, man. It's just really, really hard, I think, to make their defense work when their starters aren't out there. And, oh, by the way, the starters have some flaws that they need to figure out. Yeah, uh, so I'm glad you brought up Bones because I don't think you can have a conversation about what Brown's potential role in the playoffs could be without trying to contextualize the defensive backcourt pairing with a, a guy like Bones. And Bones needs a lot of help on the defensive end of the floor. I like Brown. I think he's a good defender. I don't think he has enough kind of length to be able to offset some of the concerns that they have in that lineup. And we saw last night in the, in the game against the Sixers, Brown was a DNP. And we, yeah. I, I think Bones was picked apart in those moments that he was in the game. So this is where, if, if you're the Denver Nuggets in the front office, are you going to be a little bit more patient and try to see what comes out of the buyout market? Or are you going to be a little bit more aggressive and maybe using or dangling one of your assets just to go out and get a more reliable depth piece for your backcourt that can shoot the ball, has some length, and isn't going to be a disaster on defense? Yeah, no, so... I think they need to do something with this yeah. bench unit for sure. And, and you know, I, I think Nuggets fans will probably come back and be like, you know, Bones has played quite a few minutes this season with DeAndre Jordan. DeAndre Jordan is like just an abject mess defensively. Yeah. They've only played 257 minutes together. I mean, they, they've been a disaster in those minutes because almost every lineup with DeAndre Jordan has been kind of a mess, uh, but they're giving up 125 points per hundred possessions in those minutes. That's absolutely right. Um, DeAndre Jordan you know, in Bones Highland in lineups together is just a no chance defensively uh, yeah. construction uh, yeah. that teams will just run ball screens at them constantly and will uh, immediately dominate. Uh, that's a team that like Mason Plumley would be a substantial upgrade for them at the backup uh, center position. He's a guy that has familiarity with the offense, obviously having been there previously. That's something that I would, be intrigued with if I was them. I, I actually think he would be a substantial upgrade on DeAndre Jordan defensively yeah. as well. I don't, I don't think Mason is good defensively, but he at least like it, it's harder to take advantage of him defensively than it is DeAndre at this point in DeAndre's career. All due respect to what he's accomplished as a multi-time all NBA player. Uh, they need to do something with this bench unit. They need to go find, in my opinion, like I would like for them to go find like a DeLon Wright 
type of player. Maybe it is DeLon Wright, a guy that can play point, can solidify lineups, can play next to Bones Highland, can be a solid defender. That would actually kind of be like a perfect fit for them, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, uh, if they were willing to kind of look at, you know, moving what it would take to get a DeLon Wright, uh, which I wouldn't think would be crazy. I mean, DeLon is, you know, basically only on like a two-year, $16 million deal. And th- those numbers are pretty matchable within Denver's cap, uh, cap sheet. Yeah. Yeah, I just, again, the, the bench unit is is a huge part of this because when we were talking yeah. earlier about Nuggets and Sixers game, if you're Philly and you see a certain type of player on the, on the floor, you can sub different pieces in to be strategic with how you want to close games or what focal points you want to attack. That's George yeah. Niang on offense. That's Melton and Thibel a little bit more on defense. You have a lot of different options. Denver just doesn't have that versatility with their bench because they've got one really positive defender, and that's Brown. And yep. he's a little bit handicapped on the offensive end of the floor where you need floor spacing when he's out there, particularly if he's not going to be on the floor with Jokic. So yeah. they, they they need a little bit more, either in terms of rim protection on that second unit so that they can play a more offensive-minded style with a guy like Bones, or they need that backcourt connector piece who's still a good defender like a DeLon Wright. I, I love that fit. That yeah. really helps play one of those two guards in Bones or Brown. But I, I think two of them together, particularly without rim protection, is going to be a struggle. Yeah, hilarious thing I just realized is they have a $9.125 million trade exception that oh. DeLon Wright fits into perfectly. Do you know how they got that exception? How? Moving Monte Morris to Washington. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I I think that like that's that's the kind of guy that would really help amplify yeah. Bones Highland and would really help um, make their roster make a little bit more sense. You know, uh, do you give up, you know, two or three second round picks for Delon Wright? I probably would. Yeah, I don't know if Denver would or I don't know if Washington would do it. Like Delon's a useful player, but. I think that Washington just continues to make confounding decisions that I I don't really understand, but uh, you know, there are other defense first guards out there that you can find. The the wizards should, should trade DeLon Wright for a couple second round picks so that it opens up more minutes for Denny Avia. That's, that's what it comes down to here. Yeah. Well, like the, the, the interesting, the really interesting one for Denver is if they could convince the bulls, to part with Alex Caruso. Caruso. Um, yeah. It feels like that's going to cost a substantial, substantial amount yeah. to do so. Again, Caruso fits perfectly into that uh, trade exception. But I, I don't know. You could also keep the trade exception and do something like Ish Smith and, uh, uh, you know, Peyton Watson and a pick. Or something like that. If the Bulls really liked Peyton Watson and wanted to take a flyer on him, if I was Denver, I would absolutely trade Peyton Watson for Alex Caruso. Um, But again, I don't think the Bulls are particularly interested in moving Caruso unless it's for an egregious overpayment. Uh, But I think that Denver is a team that could consider egregiously overpaying for Alex Caruso. And it makes sense for them to potentially do so. This is the window for them. It's open. I wouldn't be surprised if if they're really aggressive. 
Yeah. I mean, and this is a front, uh, well, we're the remnants of the front yes. office that Tim Connolly ran has traditionally been very aggressive. They've been willing to move guys, you know, like RJ Hampton for Aaron Gordon immediately after selecting them. So, you know, we'll see if Calvin Booth feels the same way as Tim did, but you know, I, I think they have to do something with this bench unit. It, it's yep. just not good enough, especially on the defensive end. And, and they need to they need to find other guys off the bench who can come in with the starters. And again, like Alex Crusoe makes a lot of sense. Like it, it feels like at times Michael Malone is still pretty gun shy on playing Michael Porter in closing lineups. Like there was a big stretch in this uh, Philly game yesterday where Michael Porter was on the bench while Philly was making that run uh, late in the fourth quarter. I mean, if you can run out Caruso, KCP, Aaron Gordon, Jamal Murray, and Jokic, that makes a lot more sense than what Denver is currently doing in not playing Michael Porter. Or you can keep Michael Porter on and you can take KCP off. Like getting, you know, look, I don't think the Bulls are going to move him, but I'm saying that defense first point guard, who can come in, take some pressure off of Bones Highland, allow Bones just to focus on scoring. I think that would be super, super, super helpful for them. And or another backup five that can allow a guy like Bones to continue to stay in the lineup. Yeah. Uh, Honestly, I think they kind of need both. I think they just need to like figure out the backup five position. Uh, Santi Aldama is the other guy with Memphis, right? Like we kind of talked about that. Memphis has a good chance to run into Denver in the playoffs. And I think they're the kind of team that can cause Denver problems theoretically by allowing Jaron Jackson to sit back at the rim uh, and then having like a four man that can play up on Jokic. You know, they have guys like a bowling ball, like David Roddy. I don't think that's a good idea. They have Jake LaRavia. I like Jake, but I don't, you know, this, this podcast was the biggest Jake LaRavia hype train (laughs) supporters last year, but Jake LaRavia on Nikola Jokic in a playoff series is a disaster idea. Um, You know, the the guy that it's going to come down to in many settings, because I don't know that they trust Steven Adams out in space is that they will use Steven Adams. I think in that series, that'll be one where they're good. Just letting Adams be physical and lean on Jokic for minutes at a time. But the other guy is Santi Aldama. Uh, If Santi can play any minutes whatsoever guarding Jokic and not be a disaster. It would be enormous for Memphis. And it would just be enormous if Santi can play in that series uh, or in any series in the playoffs. Like if they find that Santi's size, his passing, his intelligence, his shooting, where he's up at 37% from three this year, like if that holds up at all in the playoffs, they're a much more difficult problem. Uh, but they also, I think, need to probably go out and make an addition. The problem is that they can't make an addition, I think, that hamstrings their flexibility because more than anything, more than anything we've talked about so far, that is a team that is like ripe for a consolidation trade where they go out and get another star at some point. I wouldn't want to limit, I wouldn't want to make a move that limits that potential moving forward. So it might end up being that they have to trust Santi. But if they could go out and get like another bigger four man, I think that would really help them. So the thing with Santi and, and Jaron together 
is that you have length and versatility on the defensive end to be able to execute that type of scheme against Denver that we talked about Philly did. You've got just two seven-footers that can coexist together. And Mm -hmm. offensively, both of them can play impactful roles on the perimeter. And that opens up so much in a postseason series where what happens if you, I don't know, run into Minnesota in the first round and you've got Gobert and Towns out there. Huge advantage if you try to go in particularly late game lineups to two seven footers that can stretch the floor a little bit and play versatile roles defensively guarding some of those guys in space. What happens if you run into Denver and you say, all right, Jokic, you got to defend on the perimeter now because we can spread you out and play a real true five out style when we sit Steven Adams. I think the key for the Grizzlies and, and they've been leaning into Aldama a lot to try to figure out what they have with him is seeing if those minutes, particularly in maybe closing situations with Aldama and Jaron Jackson, can work. And that's a lot to put on a guy in Santi who's getting his first real NBA minutes this season. He played a very minimal role as a rookie. He still kind of functions as a rookie in my mind. There's That's a lot of pressure in a Western Conference Finals type of series to put on a younger guy like that. But man, if it works, it's really helpful for them. Well, and here's the other thing too. For the most part, they haven't really tried this lineup yet. Like right. they, they play a lot of Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson right now with Steven Adams out. Like they, they, they haven't really gone for this yet. They've only played Jaron and Santi lineups for 14 minutes this season. That's it. Like they, they clearly don't have a ton of faith in it. It seems like, uh, or maybe they're just like waiting for a moment where they have to play it. Uh, the limited minutes they've played it have been great, but you know, you never know, right? Here's the part of it that is important though. So like th- those Jaron Jackson, you know, Brandon Clark minutes where they've played together, th- they have been really good. Like they're a plus 12 basically in the 350 minutes that they've played together so far. So those minutes have worked for them. And, and maybe Brandon can be that guy that, can pressure Jokic and can be annoying and can be like a big ball screen player and like be a perfect complement as a rim runner to Jaron Jackson's floor spacing. Brandon Clark's a really good player. I would want like a bigger option. Yeah. And, and well, and I think that it gives Jokic a place to, I don't want to say hide on defense a little bit more, but a much more natural matchup in a guy like Clark, as opposed to somebody like Santi. Well, it's interesting because Denver likes to play flatter, especially against good teams. They like to play more at the level of the screen, which means Brandon's going to get to short roll. And we know that Brandon can really operate in that short roll with the floater game. He can roll all the way to the rim and dunk and be that gravitational force as a rim runner. It could actually really work against Denver. It's it's they're just in such a weird spot. The Memphis Grizzlies like. I'm just like so curious to see, you know, what a what a series against Denver looks like for them and what a series against a lot of teams looks like for them. But I particularly point out Denver because Denver is first in the Western Conference. Memphis is number two currently in the Western Conference. Um, Obviously, they've pulled away a little bit, those two teams from the rest of the West. You know, the, the Clippers are kind of starting to bring things together. I think the Pelicans will figure it out once they get Zion back. But the rest of the West, including Golden State, like <clears throat> they have some real questions here. And yeah. it does feel like 
right now, there is at least a chance that Memphis ends up on a collision course for Denver. And, you know, this is a Memphis team that, you know, has only played Denver once this year so far. And it was a 14 point loss. Uh, I'm kind of pulling up the box score now. They only had 91 points in that game. They did have Jaron in that game. Um, but Denver, uh, I believe, did not have Michael Porter Jr. or Jamal Murray in that game. Hmm. So, uh, you know, Memphis also didn't have Desmond Bain. You know, it feels like right. they didn't really get a real run of it in that game. So I, I just don't know what it looks like. And we can talk about theory, you know, until the clouds come home. And I'm sure that Memphis on some level is talking about like what it looks like in theory when all of their guys are there and all of Denver's guys are there, because those are the two teams that are best positioned long-term in the Western conference moving forward. But, you know, I think that there's quite a bit like Kevin Simon in the YouTube comments just brought up Jared Vanderbilt to the 76ers. I would love that for Memphis. I think that'd be a terrific addition for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just, again, big versatile defensive wings who can guard kind of three through five and just be disruptors. They seem to have a lot of value right now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Oh, by the way, we want to close on another guy that fits that billing. We do. And we wanted to talk about AJ Griffin and maybe a couple other guys, but let's, let's cut it there and we'll, we'll finish there. Um, The guy we want to finish on is Jeremy Sohan. Jeremy Sohan has been awesome over yeah. the course of the last, what do you want to call it? It's been like three weeks. Yeah, three weeks. I mean, particularly over his last six games where he's starting to get an, an uptick in an offensive production and has shot the ball really well from three. But yeah. this is this has really been something dating back to like early to mid-December when he went to those one-hand free throw attempts and has yep. started to gain a little bit more confidence in himself. Uh, I, I don't want to you know, get ahead of things right here, but I don't know if I've ever seen this type of in-season improvement from a young player like we've seen from Sohan over the last six weeks. He's just gotten infinitely better in so many different areas, and his confidence is growing, and the Spurs are letting him ride and giving him longer leash and things. He's really, really good. So we're talking about Jeremy Sohan because he had 30 points, eight rebounds, five assists, against the Phoenix Suns last night. The Spurs lost that game by 10. But Sohan was super confident. He shot 25 times in that game. Like, he was aggressive. He, cons- I want to talk about what I really like about him in a second, but the overall numbers over Sohan's last 20 games, which, as Spins mentioned, takes you back to December 19th, that game against the Houston Rockets. Jeremy Sohan is averaging 13 points, six rebounds, three assists, uh, about one steal per game, shooting 46% from the field, 36% from three, 77% from the line. I believe that most of those, if not all of those, are one-handed free throws. I can't remember if he started right on that date or if it was, it was a couple of games later. Um that's a true shooting percentage of like 54%, you know, just a few points below average for a guy that, oh, by the way, also ends up taking a lot of tough defensive assignments yes. for the San Antonio Spurs on a night to night basis. Two nights ago, he guarded a ton of Jeremy Grant. 
uh, against Portland. Last night, he got, you know, kind of locked up occasionally with Chris Paul, had to deal with a lot of Mikhail Bridges. Just really, really is a guy that ends up taking on a lot of defensive ability. And by the way, this is why I loved him in the draft. I had him, I went back and looked at number six overall on my board. I was an enormous fan of him because of this versatility, because I thought at some point the offense would come along. Where did you have Jeremy last year? And what have you thought of this growth over the course of this last six weeks? Yeah, I had, uh, I had him at 13, which is a little bit lower. And one of the reasons for that was because I didn't know how the offense was going to come along. I had some questions about the shooting. I had some questions about how is he going to fit into you know, a different, I saw a, a guy who can handle a little bit and is a good passer, but is he more, you know, pushed to the corners on an offense? Where, where is his ideal spot? And the growth that he's been able to show with the Spurs thus far, not just in terms of his shooting, but being competent in so many other ways is, is crucial. You know, you talked about the Portland game. They use him, the Spurs do, every once in a while as a post-up threat where they'll put the ball yeah. in his hands and run hammer screens on the weak side. They'll send cutters around him. He even yep. hit you know, one of the Phoenix Suns guys last night with this like shimmy fadeaway from about nine feet, which was really, really impressive. Like he's, his confidence has grown in those areas where we never even saw him operate in the low post or the mid post areas when he was at Baylor. I, I think the defensive part of this is always what we envision Sohan being great at. And I think the reason he's getting a little bit longer leash on the offensive end of the floor and asked to take 20 shots a game or be somebody that they say, we got to get your shooting competent right away is because he's so damn good on defense. And we saw that last night against Phoenix, the offense, 30 points, five assists, hugely impressive for a guy like Sohan, but he did it while he's guarding their most important actions and players. He was assigned for much of the second half on Chris Paul and asked to be the guy who chases over the top of those ball screens with Paul and DeAndre Ayton. And if Paul is smart enough to force a switch and Pirtle gets sucked out onto him, now Sohan is matched up with DeAndre Ayton on the blocks and has to box yep. him out. And all of the defensive effort and energy that goes into that, while on the other end of the floor, Phoenix said, Sohan's the guy we're going to hide Chris Paul on. And Sohan made him play so, time and time again. That is exactly what I want to talk about, Jeremy Sohan. Yeah. Time and time again this season, and look, you can take this one of two ways in terms of what it means for him developmentally, right? Uh, teams have tried to hide their worst defender or the guy that they most want to get rest on the defensive end on Jeremy Sohan. Phoenix did it last night with Chris Paul in that Portland game. They did it occasionally with Damian Lillard, more often uh, Anthony Simons. Uh, Earlier this year, I talked on the podcast about Dallas trying to hide Luka Doncic on him from time to time, and he dropped 20 in that game, right? Teams consistently try to do this, and he does a great job of recognizing exactly when he has like a size-based mismatch, like he did against Chris Paul last night, an effort-based mismatch where, you know, Luka Doncic is just trying to get a blow defensive or like on the defensive end because he's responsible for so much on offense. They're trying to like hide him on Sohan so that they don't get hit too hard on defense while Luca is taking like an active rest basically uh, where he's on the court. 
Um, or if it's just like a quickness based mismatch, like frankly, at times he had last night against Chris Paul, where he's just faster than Chris Paul is now and uses those long strides and he's rangy and long. Um, he just moves and he cuts and gets aggressive in transition. He just like figures out how to attack, right? And how to attack that takes most advantage of what he's being presented with on the court. Um, like against Chris Paul, you just crushed the size mismatch. Like he had a couple of those, yep. as you said, like cross corner kickouts out of the post uh, against Phoenix last night. That was super impressive. Um, he, look, he had a couple of ridiculous threes <laughs> where like the one was like off of a dribble handoff from Jakob Pertle. It was from like 27 feet. It hits the front of the rim. It bounces a million feet in the air and hits the back of the rim. And it just like randomly falls. Right. Um, but I think that it's getting harder and harder to go way under his ball screens because he is getting more comfortable just pulling from three. And on top of it, he's getting way more comfortable just covering swaths of space as a driver out of those settings. If you just go way under the screen and he's a good enough passer to take advantage. If you have to collapse on him, he's uh becoming confident enough as a pull-up mid-range weapon where he'll go for it if that ends up being an option for him. This isn't to say that he's a finished product. This isn't to say he's some incredible, you know, definite superstar in the NBA moving forward. But as Spin said, over these last six games, 18 points, six and a half rebounds, three assists, 50% from the field, 55% from three, 86% from the line. It's a really, really good run that he's on right now. And this is a guy that I think is just going to keep getting better and better and better. Um, His athleticism, his length, his defensive versatility, the passing, the processing speed, the IQ, all of it is there for him to be a very, very successful NBA player. And it's, it's showcasing itself in the exact kind of ways that I hoped it would um, for his sake when he was in the draft last year. He's he's gotten so much better so quickly. And yep. to be a rookie who is kind of the linchpin of your team on the defensive end of the floor because of his versatility and what he adds, while also showing growth on the offensive end, like this kid yep. works. He is going to continue to work and continue to get better. This is just a match made in heaven in terms of an organization that you know, always has a plan for guys and is going to continue to get you better while also knowing that they want a defensive brand of basketball in some regard too. It's he's, yeah. he's so, so, so good in San Antonio system. Yeah. I, I'm a very big fan of like, he, he will move up the rookie rankings the next time I do them, which will be not this week, probably the week after Um, in uh might end up being this week because uh, the week after is the NBA trade deadline. And that feels like an aggressive week to add that to my burden <laughs> as, a, as a content creator. Um, that's all I've got though, spins. Anything else? No, I, I don't, I don't think so. Fun weekend of, uh, of kind of NBA action and games here. I think we were treated to a, a good double header on Saturday evening and just it's that wait and see mode where a lot is going to change over the next week or two. Potentially this may be a very quiet trade deadline, but on the same token, there are enough teams out there that have to make some sort of a move. I'm really curious to see what happens. I think that's dead, right? 
Adam Spinella, tell the people where they can find your work. Yeah, follow me on Twitter at TheBoxing1 underscore. Subscribe to the Substack, TheBoxing1.substack.com, or find me on YouTube at my name, Adam Spinella. But uh, as always, Sam, really grateful to be on here kind of with you. And I think this is the first episode we've had where we've both donned the hat. And I think this is a trend that's got to continue. Yeah. Yeah. You got the boys Latin hat on. I've got the beautiful Pittsburgh pirates. Oh my goodness. What a, what an organization, Adam, just a, a modicum, uh, (laughs) just the epitome of absolute competence and brilliance is in professional organization. The Pittsburgh pirates. No doubt about it. I've seen like, three Pirates playoff games in my life. Maybe like five, something like that. Uh, I will have a mailbag coming up on Monday or Tuesday at The Athletic, breaking down some potential trade deadline stuff. Just honestly, like I call them basically on the way I would look at the deadline if I was some of these teams. Uh, I'll also maybe have rookie rankings this week now that I'm looking at like the schedule and calendar. Uh, uh, like when makes sense to do them. It might actually be like on Thursday this week. We'll see. <laughs> that, that could be an option for me. Uh, what else? What else? I will have another podcast on Wednesday. So Tuesday night on the YouTube channel, I will definitely be doing all-star reserves. I'm not sure if it'll be with Schindler or if it will be with a different guest yet. I haven't talked to Mark yet about what his schedule looks like. Uh, and when he needs to best record this week. Until next time, though, we will talk soon. Bye.